0: Welcome back to the PolicyViz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabisch. If you're interested in data, if you're interested in data visualization, you have assuredly come across a time where you are reading a map or you're making a map and you have questions and you may not be exactly sure how to plot geographic data. You may not be sure the map that you're looking at is providing or illustrating the data to you in a responsible, objective way. So I'm very excited to have on this week's episode, Mark Monmonier. Uh, distinguished professor of geography at the Maxwell School, where I also did my graduate work. So there's a little bit of a camaraderie there. Dr. Mon Manier has written a great book, How to Lie with Maps, soon to be in the third edition, along with several other books on maps and geography. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the show. And thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm really excited to chat with you about maps. I have the second edition in front of me. It is all marked up. Um, with notes and highlights everywhere and uh, now I'm excited about the third edition coming out. Um, I'd like to ask you just to introduce yourself for folks uh, who may not know uh, about you and your background and then uh, I'm going to ask you uh, very simply to tell us a little bit about how people lie with maps.
1: Okay. I'm a faculty member at Maxwell. Um, I did graduate work at Penn State, um, spent a year at the University of Rhode Island, three years at SUNY Albany and I've been at Syracuse since 1973 and I like it here. I teach courses in map design, and um, I also write about maps. Uh, I've written a number of books concerned with such things as um, meteorological charts, um, uh, specifically the history of weather maps, um, the use of maps um, in disaster management, uh, coastal mapping, a um, book called Spying with Maps. It's concerned with uh, surveillance cartography, I have a book called No Dig, No Fly, No Go, uh, which, um, well, that's the title that the publisher chose. <laughs> I would have preferred to use um, a uh, title, maps That Say No, but publishers okay. can be very persuasive in this thing. Uh, they hold all the cards. Yeah, yeah um, they do. <laughs> I edited um, volume six of the History of Cartography, Concerned of the 20th Century. And um, for Syracuse fans, I wrote a book called Lake Effect. Um mm-hmm. uh, which started out basically to be a history of cartography concerned with lake effect snow and found out some interesting things about. Um, well, it took a long while for people at the Weather Bureau to actually start to map snow. Mm-hmm. Snow was treated as something which was actually beneficial. Um, uh, if you had sleighs in winter, it sort of provide, provided traction. Mm-hmm. And um, when it snowed, they would basically take the snow and melt it and measure the uh, rain equivalent of it. As born
0: in Buffalo and gone to school in Syracuse, um, I'm going to put that second on my list here to read uh, after the
1: third edition. So I'm making
0: a special, special note of the Lake yeah. Effect book.
1: Okay, I want to know about lying with maps. Well, yeah. uh, this comes from the notion that um, there are different kinds of lies. And uh, black lies and white lies, and uh, white lies being small lies. And they're also um, the kinds of lies that children might tell where they don't tell the whole truth. They leave some things out. And I think the most cartographic lines are the result of a map leaving things out. And map readers are used to this because you simply can't show everything. If you show everything, you have something that's hopelessly cluttered, and then it wouldn't work. So because users, map readers, are used to sort of seeing maps and maps seem to be working, uh, they've developed, I think, um, a reasonable degree of credibility as data objects, as facts. And a problem is a lot of people who make maps um, don't really realize that there are a variety of different kinds of maps that you could create from the same data. And uh, this is especially true for a type of map that we call the choropleth map. But, I mean, it can also be other kinds of maps. You know, if you have land use maps, um, uh, you just can't show all different kinds of land uses. There are also issues of scale. You can use a relatively large scale, large scale being uh, uh, referring to relatively detailed scale, where you can show a lot of information for a relatively small geographic scope. You could use a small scale uh, for a very very broad area, but uh, when you do that, obviously um, the information that you're you know able to show for neighborhoods and even for counties is relatively small. And um, but but going back though to the issue of the choropleth map, which um, is just one of my favorites, and it's it's a type of map that we oftentimes uh, see in uh, discussions of uh, census data and other kinds of information collected to inform a discussion of policy, Um, what we have here is data collected for aerial units. And the aerial units are oftentimes political units, um, states and counties, um, or in some cases, even nations. When you get into uh, the issue of, let's say, worldwide maps, things become really complicated because different countries have uh, different ways of defining things, so they take their censuses at different times, and their censuses would vary in accuracy. When you're, let's say, working with data from the United States, we have a situation where we generally have maps for states or we have maps for counties. And some some states have lots of counties, others have relatively few. We have a situation where um, if you look at a national map, and if you look at a distribution that's mapped at the state level, we have some huge states that have relatively small populations. And that population might be concentrated in you know in a small number of relatively large cities. But what the eye sees when you use one symbol to represent an entire state, it looks as if it's uniform. And in many cases, it really isn't. Also, too, uh, where you have, let's say, small states like Rhode Island and relatively large states like Wyoming, which has more people than Rhode Island, but Rhode Island, a very, very tiny Mm -hmm. uh, piece of territory that's going to get a relatively small symbol, and Wyoming is going to get a relatively large symbol, which is going to create a much greater visual impact. And this is especially true, let's say, when we look at maps showing the, re- the results of a national e- election, where uh, very commonly, I mean, if you if look, let's say, at 2016, um, Donald Trump not only won the Electoral College, but he basically won the U.S. landmass. Right. Uh, you know, where you, you basically get these large red states, um, which might uh, have populations, uh, and, and also numbers, uh, numbers of electoral votes you know, much smaller than some relatively small states. Right. So, do you have a
0: favorite alternative to the choropleth to um, to adjust for the geographic scaling or the geographic distortion that occurs?
1: Yes, That's something <laughs> that they call um, a visibility base map, and um, I used it in a book on population geography that I wrote. Um, I even went and registered a copyright for it because i was just concerned with how the copyright process worked Mm. and i got some blowback from the copyright office but ultimately it went through and basically i've i've told various people if you want to use it go ahead so i mean but what it is is um each state is presented by a relatively small polygon Mm -hmm. i don't think i have any state that has a polygon with more than 10 sides Okay, And uh, you can identify if you know anything about the geography of the United States, you can tell what Florida is. You can tell um, what Mississippi is. Florida has a distinctive shape. Mississippi is next to Louisiana. so the uh, geographic position of a state is going to be one clue. Its intrinsic shape is going to be another one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know most people know anything about the geography know that the state we have in the upper right is Maine. And, uh, but these states are drawn in such a way so that they're in proportion to their population. Mm. Now, it's not a perfect fix because, um, well, things might have changed recently. But, you know, if you look at a map of uh, Georgia and Florida, and you might think that Florida is bigger or smaller than Georgia, you know. And actually, yep. Georgia is... Bigger, more, more square miles. Yeah, right, you know, right. Our panhandle, and then they have that large part yeah. that drops toward Cuba, and uh, so you know, people are not necessarily going to register,
0: yeah,
1: relative size in a very in, in a highly accurate way. But I think you know this is certainly far more reliable if you're concerned uh, with large areas with small populations not having an overwhelming impact. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah that's one thing I tried and um it's occasionally used and there there's some other things uh that are done um if you have count data generally with the choropleth map what you have would be data which would be either a percentage or a ratio. An example of the count variable would be number of people, number of inhabitants, mm-hmm. number of people who voted in an election. Um we distinguish between count data and intensity data. Intensity data would be the percentage of the population that voted. The percentage of the population that's 65 point over. Um, generally, choropleth maps, where you're using um, shaded values, basically uh, the conventional metaphor is that darker means more, lighter means less. Mm-hmm. So if you have a large um, mortality rate, you'd have a symbol that would be relatively dark. If you have a relatively low mortality rate, the symbol would be relatively light. In any event, um, if you are concerned with setting up a chain of mortuaries, and if you're trying to identify areas that, let's say, maybe have a lot of people dying,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you might want to have count data where you're looking at number of deaths. If you use a choropleth map on this, yeah. You're going to wind up with something where basically states that have lots of people, irrespective of, let's say, um, of the health situation, are going to have relatively dark symbols. States with relatively few people are going to have light symbols, but it would probably make more sense if you use symbols that would be uh, graduated in size, So that rather than darker means more, lighter means less, which would be useful for an intensity measure— you have something like bigger means more, smaller means less. And a typical approach here is what we call graduated circles, where you have one circle for each state, and the circle, if it's relatively large, it means you have a lot of people or a lot of deaths. If it's relatively small, you have fewer. Mm -hmm. But um, another way around that is to have um, what I call... um, a, a dot matrix array map where you basically have, um, you can start out of making this map with sort of a grid. And uh, you have this grid where you have dots at each grid intersection. And these dots would all be the same size. And each dot represents, you know, if you have deaths, I don't know, something like 10,000 deaths. And you can basically allocate these dots to the states based upon the number of deaths that you have. Now, um, This is an alternative to the graduated circle. A problem with the graduated circles are that you have one here, you have one over here, and let's say this one has a diameter which is twice the diameter of this one here. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that the area of a circle is proportional to the uh, square of the radius or the square of the diameter. The one that has a diameter twice as big or that is twice as tall is representing four times as many as something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a problem is that the human eye brain system, when you look at those symbols, what you're seeing is not just area, you're also seeing height. So there is a tendency to underestimate the size of the larger symbols. Now a way around that, if you use the dot matrix symbol, where um, an example would be, let's say, if you have a state that has a lot of something, it basically might have a little grid. We have these little circles and maybe five circles this way, four circles this way, altogether 20 circles. Mm-hmm. You can count. You could look at them and you can say four times five, okay, that's 20. And um, it would be a more accurate way of actually estimating mm-hmm. the, the whole amount. And if you keep these so that they're in something, you know, like, a rectangle, or it could be something like this. If you have a relatively tall states such as Illinois or Indiana, um, you have a symbol where it is proportional to some magnitude that you're trying to show, but the symbol also has something which is at least vaguely countable. Oh. And um, so there's something nicely intuitive about it. Yeah. I mean, I just want to distinguish between two principal kinds of data. We have count data, we actually have a count, and we have intensity data where we're taking this count and we're adjusting it to sort of make it more relevant. So if we have number of people, we can divide population by land area, we can get population density. Um, If we have um, population that's uh, 65 and older, you can divide it by total population and you can get the percentage of the population in the elderly cohort. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you know when you when you have things like this, darker means more, lighter means less, is a very good way for representing intensity measures. Right. Um, you talked about setting up this
0: legend or this key with proportional symbols. I also want to get your take on using a legend or a key with a choropleth map. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I guess I have a few questions here and I'll just I'll just blurt them out and, and you can take one at a time, I guess. But the first the, the questions are, are as follows. How does one pick the breaks in the legend? So if I'm going from, let's say, zero to 100 percent, I think most tools like Tableau and Google Maps, they'll just take zero to 100 percent. They'll divide it into five and they'll get these these bins. Um, mm-hmm. And And the second question is related to that my chapter 10 in your book is all is all bookmarked and, and mm-hmm. underlined. So I, I have an idea of what you're going to say. But the other question is, if I have bins where I have no observations, so let's say I have a group that goes from one to two um, mm-hmm. and a group from you know two to three and then three to four. But if I have no one in two to three, do I need to show that bin as well? Or can I just show the bins even though they're not adjacent? So Two questions there. One is, what's the, is there a best way, is there a strategy to pick the breaks? And then the second question is, do I need to show all of the bins or all of the breaks, even if there are no
1: observations in some of them? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. You have a situation where if you're basically using five bins mm. and um, you have the range between the lowest value and the highest value, you could very well wind up with three empty bins. And right. if you put symbols in there, uh it's you know obviously a waste of uh symbolization. Um it would probably make more sense to um well, might make more, more sense to um uh divide the data if you have some really extreme values. Now these extreme values, um they're called outliers. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could maybe identify the outliers uh, by, by pointing them out. Maybe for the outliers, you could actually write in. If we're dealing with state data, write the numbers in the particular polygons, and um, say maybe you know give them a relatively dark symbol, but put them all in this outlier category. Right. And if you put the actual numbers in, you know people can get the sense that okay. These are sort of, you know, head and shoulders, eyeballs and crotch above everything else. And um, they are special and we're not letting them interfere with our ability to show variation for the other more moderate values. Mm -hmm. Now that's one strategy. Um, Probably the worst case would be what some software does or at least used to do um, is to take the lowest value and the highest value and chop it up into five categories. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, somebody figured out that, well, five categories is maybe an ideal number. You know, I mean, seven probably in some cases would work if you have seven uh, symbols that are um, relatively distinct from each other. Um, uh, if you're able to use color, you have some other possibilities. Now, mm-hmm. you know, one can really go down that rabbit hole because you can use a variety of different colors You can get something that, uh, you know, some would be red, some would be green, some would be yellow. And um, if this really, if the uh, data have nothing to do with the electromagnetic spectrum, I say this is going to be very confusing. Um, Right. uh, If you have, let's say, temperature data, uh, if you're concerned, um, let's say, with the average January temperature, you know, a typical scale that might be useful here would be some sort of a warm-cold contrast where you run from a, from a strong blue to a strong red, strong red representing relatively warm, strong blue representing relatively cold. And you would have what's called a divergent scale where maybe you could put something in the center, which could be sort of a neutral color, something like white, and you go out in one direction and you're heading into you know, light red, medium red, dark red, Light blue, medium blue, dark blue. Um, And I I think most readers, if you make this clear in the key, would probably uh, grasp the fact that you're using this red-blue metaphor um, to explain color. And you can do Mm -hmm. this, too, for some other kinds of distributions where you have some sort of maybe meaningful center. But uh, if you're concerned... um, let's say uh, with um, polling data, and uh, if you're concerned let's say with um, di- divergent views, whether there are some places where people are really extremely opposed to something and some other areas where they're extremely in favor of something, but if there's sort of you know a situation where a lot of people either couldn't care less or they have you know very mixed opinions, and by the way, this is Raising another issue here, too, because we're concerned with ecological data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, it's not just, let's say, one state which is uniformly viewing something. You have a lot of variation going on within that state. But um, any event, Um, probably one of the best things, by the way, if you can think of a situation where you have a group of governors and uh they're having some sort of national governor's conference, and they're concerned with comparing states you know they are a figure that you have for the whole state probably has maybe a bit more meaning uh, maybe maybe not uh, you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, if you really want to have a good view of something more reliable map, hey don't go to states actually go to counties and you get a right. good we'll information there yeah okay, I realize, uh, you know I was sort of jumping off topic there, but Going back to the issue, let's say, uh, of how we partition data,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, why not simply show the viewer the distribution of numbers? You can get what I refer to as a number line. And basically, um, just trying to think, I mean, it can also be referred, referred to as a univariate scatter plot. The standard scatter plot uses X and Y axes, and you have a two dimensional space with lots of little dots in it. But um, if you're concerned with mapping one variable, you just put all of these little dots on a line. Now if you have problems with overlap, you can have some of them sort of jump up. So, so it looks like a little histogram. But this is a quick and dirty way of giving the viewer a sense of okay, here we have a lot of values that are clustered around here. Here we have a, an area that's relatively empty. Here we have a few outliers. Now Uh, sometimes um, people make maps, say they like to look for natural breaks. And sometimes you have them and sometimes you don't. You have a natural Mm -hmm. break if you actually have sort of a big gap in here. And you could say, okay, there's not very many values in here. So it makes sense to have a break somewhere in here and treat these in one category and these in another category. Oftentimes you don't have natural breaks. Now, there's another kind of break that very few people who make maps seem to recognize. Software generally doesn't recognize it, and this is what I call the inherently meaningful break. And what makes a break inherently need, meaningful? You have map. And if you have a map that you're making for the 50 states plus only oh, like DC, mm-hmm. one thing that is an inherently meaningful break would be the national average, because if you use a national average as a break, you can look at the state. Oh. It's above the U.S. average. This one is below the U.S. average. Now, if you do that, you have to make certain somewhere that the map key indicates that this break that you're using is, in fact, the national average. Right. If you don't do that, you know, well, it doesn't make much sense. There's another kind of of uh, natural uh, of inherently meaningful break you might have. If you're concerned with um, the rate of population increase
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and... Um, an inherently meaningful break there is zero because some states gained and other states lost. And, you know, you wouldn't want to have a category where you had uh, some, some modest winners and with some modest losers. I mean, so, and software, unless you tell it that, unless you use an override, it maybe is not going to show up. Now we talk about, let's say, you know, smart programs and smart, um, you know, laptops and smartphones. Mm-hmm. You can also have a smart database. A smart database would be one that would actually indicate any inherently meaningful breaks that you have in a numerical distribution, which is a part of that database. And so the software could take this, recognize it, and use it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if you're making a map and if you're all shrewd, if you're all concerned with, with helping your viewer, you basically look at your data and have you heard of John Tukey? Of course, yep. Okay, the famous statistician. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to uh, Tukey, uh, like I said, is, probably has a number of fam- famous sayings, but uh, the one that I like is that uh, to understand your data, you have to look at them. And it's amazing sometimes how many people go ahead and make maps without looking at the data. Yeah, Look yeah. at them with a number line, you are looking at them. And, you know, another thing you could do is put them into an Excel spreadsheet, and rank order them, and actually look at them. Don't think other than mapping, even though you're using software which is quick and dirty, and you know it is inherently instantaneous. Well, don't let that exclude you're actually taking a look at these data and understanding them. Yeah. Now, having said that, how about the viewer? You can have a situation um, nowadays with interactive maps or dynamic maps. Where um, you could give the viewer a choropleth map with only two categories, and you have a breakpoint, um, otherwise known as a cut point, and you have a slider, and you can move that slider back and forth, back and forth, and actually work with the data, engage with the data, and get maybe a better sense of where the extreme outliers are, where the extremely high values are, where the extreme low values are. You can have some way in which you could sort of notch it at the U.S. average. You could also, however, even have something where you could have that slider move across the number line at a uniform rate. And you could then, you know, note some shifts in your categories. Hmm. And this makes the map Interesting, and it can sort of, you know, underscore the fact that well, if you're moving from low to high, and if there are a lot of relatively low values, all of a sudden these low values light up, and not mm. not a whole lot happens until much later on, and you can look maybe at the last place that sort of is turned on, and uh, that basically sends a signal. Ah, this is the highest one.
0: Right. I love this idea of plotting the data in an additional way to the map. So you have the map and we know people like maps, but you also actually show, you know, at its very base, just the distribution of the data so that yep. you can see, oh, you know, th- this data is skewed to the left or skewed to the right. Um, before we go, I want to uh, ask you, what can we expect in the third edition of How to Lie with Maps? So now I'm, I'm all excited about uh, what we're going to have. So um, what what have you added or subtracted or changed in the in the edition that's about to come out?
1: Okay. I'm talking a lot more about web maps. Um, I uh, talk about um, uh, also known as slippy maps. I still talk about the Mercator projection, which has been used in a lot of situations inappropriately because Mm -hmm. it basically magnifies areas as you get closer to to the uh, poles. But I also talk a little bit about the Web Mercator, which is used by Google Maps and some other... um, mapping applications uh, which are zoomable because basically you have little tiles and um, those applications draw upon a storehouse of lots of little tiles. Some tiles are really small and you have a lot of them. Other tiles are considerably larger. And in order to get this interactive zooming, what the software is doing, it's basically serving up contiguous tiles. Mm -hmm. And um, the Mercator map, the web Mercator, makes it easy to sort of keep track of everything. But if you go into some of these applications and you zoom all the way out to a world map, some of them don't let you do this, but if you do, you're going to get a Mercator map. Mm -hmm. If you zoom all the way in, the projection is not going to be noticeable. The Mercator projection works out very nicely if you're dealing with a small area. It provides you with roughly the same scale going this way and that way. And there is um, no distortion of angles and very, very little distortion of area. Mm. So extremely versatile thing. Right. Okay. Um, I don't spend a lot of time going off on that. But um, I uh, talk about web mapping. I have a chapter on image maps. Um, I have a chapter on prohibitive cartography, which I've identified as a, um, as a, well, I wouldn't say a completely new genre, but it's something which is much more prominent in the 20th century. And uh, prohibitive cartography basically is concerned with maps that tell you where you can't go or what you can't do. And we find this, let's say, in an urban context in, uh, in our zoning maps, Um mm-hmm. Or let's say if you have uh, a historic district, you know, basically a place where if you want to paint your door some other color, uh, you can't. Um, mm. If you do, you're going to get a fine or something or, right. or yeah. sort of a nasty letter. Anyway.
0: Right. So one more question before we go. So I want to ask, do you have a single favorite map, either a cartographic map or a data map? But do you have a favorite map? I have a favorite
1: type of map. You that, okay. Yeah, I'll settle for that. Yeah. Okay, interactive weather maps, basically mm-hmm. radar maps from NOAA's NEXRAD radar system. Okay. And I get these on my iPhone, and what's neat about them is that uh, they show the intensity of precipitable moisture. They also show you weather systems that are moving. They can show weather systems as they're getting closer to where you are. They can give you a good hint of, um, you know, if you really zoom in, they can give you a good hint as to how soon is how long it's going to be before it starts raining. Uh, they're dynamic, um, they're certainly timely, and um, very engaging. Terrific! This has been great,
0: Professor. Um, There's a, a ton of information in How to Lie with Maps, and I'm sure in many of your other books. And I'm certainly going to take a look in the book on uh, on lake effect snow. So, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's it's been a real pleasure. And thank you, John. I appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for tuning into this week's episode. Uh, please leave comments or questions or suggestions on the website or on Twitter. And please do rate the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. So until next time, this has been the Policy of This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.